Hi, this is Scott Wilkinson, host of Home Theater Geeks. In episode 55, I chat with DTS Chief Scientist J.J. Johnston about perceptual coding and other audio geekery. So stay tuned. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Home Theater Geeks is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Home Theater Geeks with Scott Wilkinson, recorded February 28th, 2011, episode 55. Perception is everything. Hey there, Scott Wilkinson here with UltimateAVMag.com and HomeTheater.com. My guest geek this week is J.J. Johnston, Chief Scientist for DTS. Hey, JJ, welcome to the show. How do? So glad you could join us. Those who are tuned into the live video stream at live.twit.tv or into the chat room at irc.twit.tv can post questions for JJ, and I'll pass on as many as I can. So, JJ, uh, you've had a long history working with audio perception, coding, processing. Tell us about some of the work you've done uh, over the last, uh, what, three decades? Well, since 1976 at Bell Labs and then Microsoft and then here, um, but I started out doing sound for bands back when I was in high school. Uh, um, like so many of us. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Um, went from there to actually learning why it really worked. Uh, went through Carnegie Mellon, got my bachelor's degree, got my master's degree, went to Bell Labs to learn signal processing from the people who actually knew it. Mm -hmm. um, Worked on speech coding, worked on voice coding, uh, worked a lot on the older style coders, which is called a source coder, where you try to model the source, figured out they didn't work. That's how I got into perception. Mm. So audio perception then obviously is critical when trying to code audio and mm, remove as much of it as, as you can. I mean, this is the goal of, say, MP3, right, is to reduce the amount of data that gets sent without reducing the sound quality. I would classify it as trying to do as little harm as you can mm -hmm. while you make yourself able to actually transmit it over the link you've got. Right. And in the case of I MP3, mean, of course, the link is uh, assumed to be relatively low bandwidth, right? Yeah, that's, that's why it all... The, one of the predecessors of MP3 was a thing called PXFM that I did at Bell Labs. Um, its goal was actually to provide a broadband line for radio stations over ISDN. That was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. um, that application is obviously long gone because we don't, have, we don't use ISDN anymore. We actually have a real internet. Uh, <laughs> that's where it got started. And, and, of course, superseded, as all technology ultimately is. <laughs> well, I use lossless coding these days myself. Yeah, I do too. Um, <clears throat> so you were telling me a little bit before we got started on the show about acoustics and perception of audio and, and what's important and what's not. Can you reiterate some of that for our audience? Well, the difficulty with capturing a live acoustic in a natural environment is that the amount of information that you need to capture just to be able to play it back for one person is enormous. Basically, you'd have to do something like tile a sphere one meter around your head with microphones every three quarters of an inch and sample every one of those Red Book CD rates. And good luck with that. 
<laughs> so, uh, well, but I mean, yeah, yeah, processing is getting cheap. Uh, storage is getting cheap. Why couldn't somebody do that ultimately? Well, the other half of that problem is, is then because you're putting up so many microns, you're actually going to affect the sound field. Ah, of course. Well, I mean, if you, yeah, exactly. You almost have a reflective surface around your head. Well, it's the whole problem of you. If you try to capture the information, you're going to affect the information. You know, it's basic physics mm -hmm. when you get down to it. Quantum mechanics, ultimately. <laughs> well, it's not quantum mechanics. It's the same sort of problem. In order for the microphone to work, you actually have to take some energy out of the air. When you mm -hmm. take the energy out of the air, you change the sound field. When you put 3,000 mics around your head, you've got a lot of energy getting bounced, you know, removed and bounced around and so on. So it's, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. even if you could do that, though, you don't need most of the information. That's the real key. Ah. So if you, you don't need, if you don't need the information, what, what information do you need? What's the ideal way to, to capture that, uh, to analyze anyway, <coughs> the, the right, audio, have, uh, uh, the perceptive audio, what do you need? Well, what the way we evolved to basically localize things in a sense, we can hear in, in 360, 360 degrees. It's not like eyesight. Hearing is our, if you were, distant early warning sense. So you can hear behind you, despite the fact you only have two ears, you can use head-related transfer functions and stuff that we understand pretty well now to tell what direction something's coming from. So these kinds of cues are not very dense like the sound field in the theater. You know, a lot of things depend on the first arrival, depend on the timber of the direct sound, depend on the timber of any reverberant sound. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of things you actually have to work about. So you can reduce the amount of information by a lot and still get a decent illusion, which is the only reason stereo works, of course. Mm. Right. Now, what do you think about, um, speaking of directionality, uh, I've talked with Tom Holman, uh, <coughs> and in fact, my very first podcast guest, and... Um, uh, he, he maintains that directionality behind you isn't nearly as acute as directionality in front of you, which he argues means that you don't really need all those surround speakers behind you. He'd rather put more speakers in front of you to enhance the sense of, of ambience and uh, space. How do you respond to that? Well, we've had that discussion in person. <laughs> um, it's different. I'm not sure I'd say it's less sensitive, but I will agree that it's different. Mm. Um, however, if you've ever tried turning around with your back to a stereo, you notice a lot of times it's easier, for instance, to build a central image when you're looking the other direction. Have you ever tried that? No, Something I don't think I have. Something worth trying. However, it depends a great deal on the room. It depends a great deal on a lot of things. Mm. So the, difficult, the difficulty with front, side, and back is not really the ability to discriminate, it's the head-related transfer functions. If you look at the head-related transfer function coming from your side, there's a big peak at high frequencies because the signal is going, the, air, the, the direct wave is going straight down your ear canal. If you look from the back, there's a great big loss of high frequencies because the pinna, your ear, your visible part of your ear blocks them all. Mm. And the difficulty with trying to get the back sensation from the side or the side sensation from the back is you also, you've learned to compare, since you, if for some signal you don't know, that's set loose in a room, you have no idea what the timber is until after you hear it. But what you hear, you hear two things. You hear the timber of the direct sound, the thing that gets there first. Then you hear the timber of the sound is reflected around the room. You naturally compare these. Mm. I mean, it's not something you think about it. You do it. Right. And... 
what happens if the timber of the reflected sound is brighter than the timber of the direct you think it's behind you if it's the other way around you think it's to the side or front of you so while you don't necessarily have the great angular resolution in the back you have a difficulty in being able to get a back sensation from the side or a side sensation from back. So this is why I basically argue for speakers at 90, 85 or 90 and 135 for the rear speakers. Mm. Mm. Okay. But you can, also was... use, you can also use codecs then to, uh, or I should say um, processing, to simulate sounds coming from behind you or to the side of you depending on how you filter it, right? Well, you can filter it, but then the playback room has reverberation. Uh, of course. It has an effect that, that the person who's creating the sound can't possibly know in advance. Right. And you have no control over it, and it's going to undo the cue that you just put in. It's the same problem with a central image. You know, if you look at a central image in a stereo system, you have a dip because of the, cance because of the cancellation from the two signals coming from the two speakers. You have a dip in the, like, one one to three kilohertz range. It depends a little bit on the person, but you can get as much as a four or five dB cancellation right in the center of that range from the fact you're listening to a nice solid central image from two speakers. And you notice how you have some trouble hearing distance for the vocalist and stereo. Mm. And one of the reasons for that is because that dip is in the range where little peaks from floor reflection are actually giving you some of the distance cues. Hmm. Well, certainly so, the one to th one to three k range is also right where the uh, intelligibility of of the voice is as well, right? Yeah. Well, usually it's not deep enough to cause a lot of trouble with intelligibility, but you notice occasionally when you get something in a strange room, occasionally you hear an occasional note behind you. If you mm -hmm. notice that, if sometimes that's actually because the cancellation is hitting something that actually makes you think you're hearing the reverberant sound. It, it came out brighter than the direct. And so it fooled you. Mm. Well, this actually relates to a couple of questions we have in the chat room. Um, uh, Virgil asks, uh, don't objects in the room absorb sound? Can this affect the quality of the sound? I would think the answer is clearly yes, right? Well, I have to. I mean, physics works. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've heard a lot of arguments in the audio community that suggest that they can get around physics, but those never seem to actually show up in the market for some reason. <laughs> you kind of change the laws of physics. Hey, can... my, my, I, <laughs> and also, um, aphasia, a very interesting <laughs> handle in the chat room, <laughs> uh, asked this question. Is it, in your opinion, JJ... Um, is it better to go with a 5.1 surround, um, A plus B, I'm not sure what that means, or a true 6.1 surround, side plus surround back? It seems there's not a lot of material out for the 6.1 discrete, uh, which relates to DTS, which is where you work now. We're going to get into that more in a minute. But um, in terms of creating an effective and realistic sound, surround sound field, uh, are, are you more an advocate of 5.1 or 6.1? 7. Sorry. Ah, seven. Okay, sorry. Um, six is better than five. Um, the center so, back speaker, at least, you can get a sensation from the back. Mm -hmm. However, you have it be, because of the rapid change in the HRTF as you go from the side to the back, mm -hmm. you actually need one and you need a pair in front and a pair behind to fill to be able to get sensation in the whole in the whole uh, plane in the whole circle. You're talking about surround field. speakers now, right? A, a yeah. pair of surrounds in the front or to the sides? Well, 
when we go, my thought is we go with this with the three front in a normal place. We have two very wide, not just wide, but very wide, and then two back, and then two call it back speakers. Mm-hmm. Like I said, uh, you know, plus or minus thirty um, zero. You know, center speaker, then maybe one at eighty five and one at one thirty five mm-hmm. would be ideal. I also agree that it's really hard to set that up in a living room. So <laughs> there's other stuff we can discuss. But that's the kind of thing you have to consider. Right, exactly. Um, <clears throat> here's a, a slightly off-topic question, but one that I think is very interesting from Audio Guy. Uh, what kind of education is recommended for getting into audio coding and perception and signal processing and the stuff that you've done for the last 30, 40 years? It's difficult. The difficulty with working in audio is you're doing part physics, part physical acoustics, part perception, part psychology, and a ton of signal processing. Um, the one that's maybe the most difficult is the signal processing. So if you're really going to try to get deep into the invention side as opposed to the application side, you've got to get the signal processing. And then the next thing you probably want to do is the psychoacoustics, the hearing, the, uh, the mm-hmm. study of hearing. The other stuff, if you've got the math to do signal processing, you can probably master the uh, the acoustics. It's a hard problem because, well, a good example is one of the paper, the first paper I wrote on perceptual coding, which was like back in '88 or '80, some '87, '88, '89, something like that. Mm. I it basically it was a quarter psychoacoustics, a quarter signal processing, quarter coding theory, and a quarter. CS. And we had trouble with the reviewers because every one of the reviewers said the CS reviewers said the CS stuff is trivial. Why are you mentioning it? But everything else is too complicated. <laughs> and the psychoacoustician said the psychoacoustics is trivial, but trivial, but everything else is too complicated. <laughs> and the guy and the guy from the coding community said the coding is really simple, but everything else is too you see the problem. Yes, I see the and problem. The, then the problem is is that you cover a lot of disciplines. So I don't have a good answer for that. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Go, go get education as much as you can in all of these fields and then expect those who are deep into each one to not understand the others. That's probably the way to put it. (laughs) So uh, Eric Duckman asks, uh, if you like seven better than six or five, is there a max? What's the point of diminishing returns? I've written often about, uh, you know, well, we know that uh, DTS has just introduced Neo X, which is an 11-channel system. I've heard 22-channel systems, 45-channel systems. Eosono goes into the hundreds of channels. Well, that's a different... Eosono is a different approach altogether. Um, it's actually trying to reproduce the sound field. It's an analytic approach as opposed to a perceptual approach. Mm. But, What's the uh, difference between those two? But, but let's take a little sidetrack here. I'd like to know more specifically, what's the difference between an analytical approach versus a perceptual approach. Perceptual approach, say if there's something coming from um, 30 degrees elevation and 15 degrees right, you try to create the sensation. You hear it coming from there. Mm-hmm. Even if it's not, even any, if you don't have a speaker right there. It, even if you don't have a speaker right there, and it means there won't be any physically generated waveform in the room that has that particular vector. Right. Eosono's approach would be to actually physically create that vector in the room, although they don't typically do elevation. Elevation was probably a bad example, but the point is they can create a, a signal coming at you from any vector. Mm-hmm. That's the Yosano approach. It's an analytic approach. The perceptual, the perceptual approach is to make it sound like that, which takes a lot less things. 
Now, to answer your question, when you get to seven in the right place, you can make something sound like it's coming from any point on the plane. You have to do processing. You have to think about how you do it, but you can make it sound like, you know, you, I point anywhere in the plane and you can hear something coming from that direction. Right. So my but answer that's is only two. Sorry, that's go ahead. only in a plane. Yes. But that's, and that's 2D. Got, that's 2D. Well, not, well, it's sort of. 2D because you can also get distance, yeah. Um, but then when you want to go to elevation, elevation is harder to simulate because the distance between your ear and your shoulder, my ear and my shoulder, everybody's is different. And that's actually what creates the primary interference you hear. Hmm. Which lets you so de a, determine directionality uh, in terms of elevation. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and you and you know that you know your own because you live with it, right? But yours and mine and everybody else's, to some extent, this in in the uh, on the plane head related transfer functions are not that similar. But by using interaural time difference, you can get something that works pretty well. Mm -hmm. With going out of the plane, it's harder to simulate. So what, you, what happens when you go out of the plane is that it helps to have some speakers with some elevation. Right, now, which is where DTS 11.1 comes in, or Neo X right. comes in, right? Well, there's a lot of people have talked about having the proscenium uh, loudspeakers. Now, when, in a standard concert hall, the proscenium does have a notable reflection, and it's, a big part, and it's part of the concert hall experience. Mm -hmm. This, on the other hand, doesn't give you the balcony, balcony in the back. This only gives uh, you the one in front. Uh, you mean the, the height in the front? Yeah. Now, it's a start. There's a lot of people standardized in that sort of setting where you have center, left, right, left, right, wide, right, left, surround, right, surround, left, rear, right, rear, and then to elevation. And that's been standardized on. It's mm -hmm. something, you know, you have to provide. Um, if I had my druthers, we'd probably only have seven in the plane and we have four elevation. Ah, two in front and two in back? Two in front, one over your head and one in back. Ah, okay, very good. And again, this is looking at what happens to the head-related transfer functions. You try to find combinations that can get you into all the directions up. I mean, now down is a different problem. We don't normally experience sound coming from below us. Mm, true. I mean, we true. tend to be You've playing the critters. Right, yeah, right. You, we, we, we live on the ground. Yes, when I hear the ground rumbling, I usually go outside. <laughs> or into a doorway. Well, you know, get into a triangular space. That's what they say. Really? For an earthquake? Is that what yeah. they say? Yes, that way it's least likely to collapse on you. Ah, huh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> um, what about the loudness wars? I know that you've, you've talked about that in the past. Oh, uh, man. Well, give me something on that. Well, there's a couple things that complicate it. One is nowadays everything in the radio is set up to be played in the car where if you don't have a background noise sensitive thing, you have to compress the daylights out of things. And this has basically created a, a situation where people want a consistently high loudness and it's loudness as opposed to intensity. Do I need to explain the difference? Yes, please do. Okay. Intensity is sound pressure level. It's energy in the atmosphere. It's what you measure. Loudness is the sensation level. How loud does it sound? Mm. Now, intensity and loudness track, but only if you don't change the spectrum. So if I filter, I can take a signal and filter it so that it still has the same energy, but it will have, I can have a substantially different loudness. 
So loudness and intensity are related, but they're not tightly coupled. So what you need in a car is loudness, which is to say you need to elevate the relevant parts of the signal above the masking level in the car. Now, right, which is why they, which is why they do the dynamic range compression, right? Yes, and that's why they do pre-emphasis dynamic range compression, multi-band compression, all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. The difficulty is if you listen to that in your house, it's fatiguing. Mm. Now, on top of that. For whatever reason, people have started making their CDs and their recordings louder, 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 louder. You know, in a tape, you really didn't want to run it at zero all the time. In a CD, you can run as close as you can to zero without having anything you can't predict happen. Right. Unfortunately, but, I mean, you, can't you, get, can't, you can't get above zero. So when you say but, louder and louder and louder, you, you do have a, uh, a limit there, right? We have a limit to the peak level. The catch is, is what they can do is they can process the daylight side of things so that you actually use up all of the available level, which means, again, you have no dynamic range, and it means that you're broadening the spectrum. And the broader a spectrum is for the same amount of energy, the louder it is. Mm, so you're louder, louder, yeah. louder, louder, louder. And I can't explain why people did this. I think what happens is if you listen to something that's a little bit louder, take two things... Identical things, except you boost the loudness in one, either by raising the intensity or by a little bit of filtering. The one that's louder, a little bit louder, always sounds better. And what I think may have happened is we've gone these little tiny steps. The catch is that kind of judgment isn't transitive. So if A is better than B and B is better than C, that doesn't mean A is better than that doesn't mean A is better than C. Mm. You can, you know, if you take, if you keep compressing and compressing, you might find at some point you take the compressed version and people will prefer the original. Right. So it's right. not one of those transitive things. You know, this is perception. This isn't people. This is, sorry, this isn't mathematics. Mathematics, it's, it's uniform. It's monotonic. With people, it isn't. Right. Right. I'm reminded of uh, the same thing in the, in the visual arena, which is that a brighter picture and and to use the spectrum analogy a bluer picture uh people often say oh that's better the, you, uh, you'd refer to the torch mode in a uh, for a tv set in the story precisely. yes precisely <laughs> same thing same thing and i i of course I'm, I'm always about you know turn it back to cinema mode get it out of torch mode <laughs> It's going to look dim for a while. You're not going to like it for a little while, but when you get used to it, it's actually going to be a better experience. Yep. And there, well, there's a similar problem in audio. If you want, if you need to teach somebody some new some new thing you've done, you have to overdo it. You have to, if you will, turn it up to Best Buy mode. The problem <laughs> is, is after you listen to this for a couple hours, it gets really wearing, and you want to turn it back. Mm-hmm. And what you need to do is you need to have a system wherein you can provide the experience that teaches people how to listen, but also that takes it back to a natural sound when you, you know, to the, to the effect you really wanted in the first place, if you will. Right. And it's a problem with perception. I mean, you know, the amount of information that comes in your ear, you know, is, you know, on the order of 10 megabits per ear. The amount that you can actually cognitively think about is on the order of a couple of bytes per second. And really? what happens is, yes, and you can steer that entire process. If I tell you, listen to the high frequencies, I can put in massive bass distortion you ever notice. 
If I tell you, listen to the bass distortion, I can turn the high frequencies on and off, and you'll never notice. You can focus, and this is just something you do naturally. You can focus on the part you're listening to. Mm -hmm. So what you have to do when you're trying to create something, say, that's more realistic, especially for somebody that's never been in a concert hall, you have to actually teach them how a concert hall sounds first. Mm -hmm. You can't just go and play it for them or they'll just say, what's that? They have to learn how to extract the clues and cues from the signal and learn how to understand what they're hearing. Mm -hmm. it, this reminds me so much of something I saw on TV just the other day. Um, uh, a demonstration of something called perceptual blindness in which uh, test subjects are asked to watch a video <coughs> and, pay, and pay attention to a certain thing. In this case, there were some pe there were people bouncing a ball and some of them were in a red shirt, some of them were in a blue shirt and the su test subject was asked to count the number of balls that the people in the red shirt, red shirts, uh, bounced into a bucket and count them. And so they did that, and they got some answer. And then they said, okay, now we're going to play you the same video and watch, just watch the entire video. Don't worry about counting the balls. And there was this, uh, somebody in, an, in a uniform, a police uniform or an army uniform or something, who came into the scene and, and stood there. And virtually everyone said, oh, I didn't see him before. And they absolutely simply did not see this element of the scene, even though they were looking at it. That's exactly the same situation. The eyes, ears both work the same way. Eyes, you even have more than 10 megabits. But when you get down to that couple of bytes per second, that is actually what we handle cognitively. And right. all of this filtering, I mean, this is the same, exact same problem. Yeah, exactly. I'm amazed at how, how little information, according to you, we actually pay attention to. If, if it's 10 megabits, you said, are coming in? To the ears, mm -hmm. that's uh, and an approximation. Are, roughly, you know, approximate. Uh, I would assume it's more than that coming into the eyes, because I've always been amazed that the, that well, our yes, hearing no. The eye, the eyes are two dimensional, so there's a lot more data per, if you will, per frame. But the eyes are much, much, much slower in terms of time response. Really? Don't forget your yeah. Don't forget you can hear you can hear a ten microsecond difference in interaural time difference. 10 microseconds means nothing to the visual system at all. True enough. And yet also, on the other hand, I, I always thought that, um, I was always led to believe that um, uh, you can't perceive that two sonic events are separate and occur at different times if they're less than 10 milliseconds apart. But here's the trick. You, are you talking about the first arrival or something arrival after, something afterwards? The way your ear works is when something arrives, it detects. And as soon as it detects, the ability for it to detect something at the same level goes way, way, way down. Your mm. ear is a leading edge detector. Mm. Now, that's not a broadband detector. Your ear breaks, if you will, analyzes the signal at many frequencies. Right. And the inner, the inner ear, the, yeah. the cochlea... Uh, acts as a spectrum analyzer, essentially. As a weird spectrum analyzer, yes. And what <laughs> happens is, is the first arrival is the key here. You've heard of the precedence effect? If you yes. put a signal and then you put another signal louder right after it, you don't even hear the louder signal. And that's because of the fa way that the, the mechanics of the ear work. 
It emphasizes the first arrivals, which, by the way, is really important in being able to understand speech in a room and really important for localization. So while I can, if I put two clicks 10 milliseconds apart, you will, you will fuse them. But if I put two clicks 10 milliseconds apart in your ears, it's going to make you feel strange because you can't get that kind of interaural time delay. If I you mean, take you two mean clicks, 10 milliseconds apart, one into one ear and one into the other with headphones? Yes. Yes, you just don't get that time kind of delay in the real world. Mm -hmm. That would just sound weird. That would just sound so, weird, yeah. Yeah. Now, what you can do, what you can do, however, you can show 10 microseconds or 20 microseconds. You can easily hear image motion in a Gaussian pulse. And you can do this uh, inside you, of you, Hold on a second. Just for our listeners, go back over that a little bit again and explain a bit of what a Gaussian pulse is. A Gaussian pulse is a pulse that you generate with a sine wave and a, and a particular kind of window so that has a certain bandwidth. You can generate, say, a Gaussian pulse with a 5 kilohertz bandwidth at 10 kilohertz. That means that you can effectively generate a pulse for everything is inbound. Everything is under 20 kilohertz. But because it's generated analytically, I can shift it forward and backward in terms of less than a sample. And you can easily hear, if you do this, put different pulses into the two ears, you can easily hear down to an untrained person here 20 milli. 20 microseconds, a trained person can get down to 5 microseconds in hearing image shift mm. inside of a standard 44.1 system. Mm. Wow. Now, how does that and relate to, to the eye, then? Well, the eye doesn't have anything near that time sensitive. What the eye has is spatial sensitivity. The mm. eye does no frequency analysis to speak of. I mean, there's some things that go on above you know, in the central nervous system that have some spatial frequency sensitivity, but the eye does no, fre no s frequency selection to speak of other than detecting different colors, which is a slow, long-term thing, not mm -hmm. a very rapid process. Right, exactly. Um, I've also been always amazed that the ear, the hearing system, can detect 10 octaves of information, whereas the eye can detect only one octave of information. And barely that. And barely that. I've yeah. always attributed uh, that to the fact that visual information is so much more dense. Uh, am I correct on that? Well, um, I can't say you're incorrect, but that's not the way I'd think about it. Oh, please. Uh, tell me how you think about it. Well, if you look at sound, you're actually listening to what you'd call a baseband signal. You know, DC, what do you call, you know, sounds that are near DC, you know, they're a tenth of a hertz or a millihertz. You know what you call those? You call those weather. <laughs> I'm not kidding. You call those weather. Okay. And as you get up to 20 hertz, you know, that's more or less considered the lowest frequency. You can hear a sensation of it at very high levels. And you actually feel that before you actually hear it via the cochlea. Right. And then you get up to around 20 kilohertz, which curiously enough is actually where the atmosphere stops transmitting sound terribly well. I mean, you know, the atmosphere is not linear, it's dispersive, and it absorbs lots of sound, especially at high frequencies. Mm. So anything you know, above so, 20, hertz, 20 kilohertz, it will absorb and really won't transmit well, very more, far? It depends. I mean, sounds that are near you, up to 50 or 60 kilohertz, won't do us any good. But, you know, for instance, a cat can use them to actually hear a mouse breathing, use their two ears to actually figure out Within a, you know, when they're within a couple of feet of the mouse to figure out actually not only the direction of the mouse, but the distance of the mouse. Hmm. So you and can, bats, you know, bats, bats do the same thing too. And, and uh, uh, dolphins, they all, all use echolocation, right? 
Well, see, they're in dolphins are in water, different medium. Ah, uh, yes, they're in a different and medium, bats, aren't they? And bats use incredibly high intensity ultrasonic. Really? Yes. Hmm. Compa- you know, for something that's generated from a critter that's, you know, four inches long, the level is pretty intense. And don't forget, you know, the, your level of hearing. You know, if you look at, you know, if you could create a sine wave with one atmosphere plus and minus, which you can't because the atmosphere is linear, but if you could, that would be 194 dB sound pressure level. <laughs> the quietest thing you can hear is roughly 10 to the minus 10 in terms of one atmosphere. Mm-hmm. The quiet sounds are incredibly small. They so are it's very one, near it's the it's Sorry, I was going to say it's one ten billionth of, yeah. of, 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 of a difference, a variation of one ten billionth of a, one atmosphere of pressure. Yeah, yeah. It's not very much at all, and you still hear it. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you look at the, sensit- the basic sensitivity of the ear, you wind up with about, how to put this, um, well, you know, the air is made of molecules. Sound, and what makes pressure, air pressure, is the molecules bouncing off of the surface bouncing off of surfaces, and that makes noise because they transfer momentum to the surface. Mm -hmm. And the noise level on your eardrum is actually almost to the threshold of hearing. So we can hear almost from the noise inherent in the system, as it were. Mm -hmm. The noise floor, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, We can hear almost to the noise floor of the system, which is actually very sensitive. The amount... The, the, the hair cells moving inside your cochlea is really, really small. Mm-hmm. So ears are very sensitive. Now, eyes have a similar sensitivity, but ears can adapt in, my, in milliseconds, and your eyes take 15 minutes to adapt. <laughs> True enough. Uh, now, they, the eyes, I know, have a very wide overall dynamic range that is uh, from from the uh, lowest levels of light to the highest levels of light that, that we can perceive without pain anyway. Um, but within that, they only are instantaneously perceiving a, a smaller range. And that range moves up and down depending on the overall level of ambient light. Have I got that right? That is correct. Um, and your what, ear, and now the thing is your ear sort of works like that, except that it's also frequency filter. The Frequency filtering comes before that range, and you can adapt that range in milliseconds. Ah, instead of minutes. So, <laughs> which is how which is how auditory masking works. If you have something that's more than thirty dB, thirty dB below another signal at the same frequency, you will mm-hmm. never hear it. You're below the noise level of the system. But right, if I take a signal, say at nineteen kilohertz, it's quite loud. And I put a, and as a distorting signal, I put in four kilohertz, which wouldn't be normal nonlinear distortion. But say I do that, that's the noise thing. You can now require a 90 dB signal to noise ratio to make you unable to hear that four kilohertz tone. Wow. And that's because of the frequency separation. Right. I was, this is another point I was going to make up, make, uh, make here was uh, that, that perceptual masking uh, also depends upon how far apart the two frequencies are, right? Entirely. I mean, at low frequencies, you can figure that, you, if you will, the filter bandwidth is 70 or 80 hertz wide. At high frequencies, you can figure it's about a quarter of an octave. And, and that's, so with, if, if two frequencies are within that range... Um, then they the, affect each other. Right. And the louder one will mask say, the softer one? 
The louder one will reduce the loudness of the softer one until the ratio is to a certain size, and then it will mask the softer one. Basically, the way to put it is at a certain point, the loudness of the softer tone mm-hmm. or the softer signal will, dis- will ter- go to zero. Mm-hmm. And this that's is the, the way bit- to express I'm sorry, go right ahead. I said that's really the way to express it is when the loudness goes to zero, that's the masking level. Right. And this is really the basis of lossy audio coding, such as MP3, right? Yep. Sure is. Hmm. So how has... Sorry, sorry, go right ahead. No, go ahead. You go ahead. I was going to ask, um, how has the technology of lossy audio coding that takes advantage of this masking phenomenon, uh, how has that progressed over the years and become better? Uh, were, I assume early attempts... Uh, the, the goal, of course, as we said at the beginning, was to make it... to have as little perceptual loss as possible, to do as little damage as possible. Um, That's and yet I'm sure that the early days of this, there was a lot of damage done, and now there's probably less. How has that progressed over the over the time as, as these things have been developed? What's happened instead of doing less damage, what we found is that when you get a better codec like AC, DTS, whatever, as, you turn, as they get better codecs, people just turn the bit rate pipe down. So we sort of subsisted at a fixed level of damage and we get fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer bits. And that's sort of sad, uh. but that's what's happened. And that's not ah. what I've advocated. <laughs> <laughs> what have you advocated then? I've said, why don't we use one of the good codecs at a high bit rate? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and your suggestion is met with? Loud hooting, hollering, and the occasional outright curse. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. Well, if you have, in certain things, if you're doing radio, you have a problem. You have a fixed bandwidth. But, you know, if we're looking at sending something over the Internet, you know, we could use DTS lossy, and we could do eight channels of lossy, and it wouldn't stress anybody's Internet connection. So why not? Let's just do it right. I I couldn't agree more. The same thing's actually happening with video. Uh, Once again, I can make an analogy to video, which is um, the newer video codecs, I think, are trying to achieve the same level of damage or less not damage it to a certain degree, but reduce the number of bits once again. Well, here's the thing. When you do coding, you have two choices. If you have a better coder, you can either get a better quality at the same rate or lower, or the same quality at a lower rate. And there's always this thing called the rate distortion curve. And that's actually more of a mathematical thing than the perceptual thing. But, you know, mathematics always works anyhow. What it says is that for any level, of any rate you get a certain amount of distortion. As the coder gets better, the amount of distortion you get at a given rate goes down. So you can, and almost all of these, you have a dial. You can turn the distortion up, you can turn the distortion down, or you can turn the rate up, turn the rate down. Um, this is while you're encoding the audio, right? Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, while you're encoding, you... Yeah. Yeah. You, well, there's, there are some embedded codecs out there, um, but... Generally, yes, you have to do this at encoding. Right. Um, so <clears throat> the question then really is, how do we encourage the people who are doing the encoding, who, are, who have their hands on those knobs, uh, to choose to do it so that we get uh, less distortion, higher quality, 
at a given bit rate rather than the other way around. Well, what I'm trying to do is actually sort of skewed off of that. I'm actually trying to convince people to use new methods to get more 3D sorts of effects, get more realistic effects, get more enveloping effects in ways that require a higher coding rate. One of the things that low rate, very low rate coders do is they take out a lot of the time detail of the interaural stuff and the inter-loudspeaker, inter-channel stuff. Mm -hmm. And if you really want good envelopment, you really want to get that sensation that the airplane just blew over your head, you actually have to keep those time details. So I'm trying to come up with stuff that sounds good when you code it right at this point. <laughs> I haven't worked on coding since about 2000. I'm sort of, I regard it as, you know, in a way, sort of done. We've hit the limits of the current technology unless, until and unless somebody comes up with a whole new way. What we're going to do is we're going to be coming up with more ways to distort a signal in ways that people don't object. But I really prefer transparent coding, and I think we sort of hit the wall on that. I mean, there's a certain amount of information your auditory system can accept, and when you hit that rate, you're going to have a hard time going below it. Mm. So if you're not working on coding these days, what are you working on? Well, I'm working on a couple of things. Working on, you've heard some of the 3D stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I'm working on um, production techniques, trying to get people to pay attention to production techniques that are um, more suited, if you will, for the home and for the theater. I mean, there's a big dichotomy there. some examples? There. Well, consider in the theater, you have to, everybody in the theater has to have a good experience not just the one guy sitting equal distance from all the speakers. <laughs> True enough. I mean, with the ticket prices being what they are today, everyone better have a good experience or there'll be hell to pay. Uh, yep. And the problem with that is it means you have to limit the production techniques you use. You have to, for instance, put the dialogue only in the center channel. There's a whole bunch of other things you have to do as well. You have to, basically, you have to accommodate the acoustics of the theater. And it comes down to a basic issue. You can never make a room sound smaller than how it sounds naturally. Mm. You can sort of create an illusion, kind of, sort of, but not too well. But you can always make a room sound bigger. Artificial. Mm. Why is that? Because you can always add a reverberation system. Ah, uh, of course. That mimics the bigger room. And if mm -hmm. you have enough speakers and enough decorrelation, it makes the room sound bigger. Mm -hmm. But there's, and if you make those speakers so they're radiating toward the listener, that the signal out of the speaker will get there before the reflections off of the wall in the room. Mm -hmm. And if you remember that precedence effect thing, mm -hmm. so to some extent you can actually overwrite the acoustics of the listening room, perceptually, not mm. physically, obviously. Right. You know, physics still physics continues to work no matter what anybody wants. <laughs> but um, you can overwrite it. With, you can overwrite it perceptually, and mm -hmm. to some extent, you know, you can't. You know, if there's a great big reflective surface, there's a great big reflective surface. There's not much you're going to do about that. Mm -hmm. So what about the, uh, then the production techniques, the differences between doing it in the cinema versus doing it for the home? Well, if I want, say, to have somebody being in a, a very intimate sensation in the cinema, I have all those reflections off the chairs in front of me to deal with. It's still going to sound like it's coming from the screen. In the home where we don't have too many first reflections, Say if we're talking about a home a home theater, I can make it sound like it's I can make it if you will step out of this step out of the uh, speaker and sound like it's right in front of you. 
You can also make it sound like it's 20 miles away. <clears throat> so the range of sensations you can get in the home theater is a lot bigger. But you can only do that if you mix for the home theater. Mm. Which takes now, us to the... That takes us to the talk I did at the AAS last fall, pointing out that if you the, that now if you do that for the home, then you try to play that back in the theater, it's going to fall apart completely. Hmm, because it's a larger room. Because the physics are fighting you. What it works if you sit down and figure out the size of the ideal listening area for say 5.1 or 7.1, it is about the same surface area in terms of floor space for the theater. Or for the home theater. Now, in the home theater, the good news is it covers the whole couch. You can see where this falls. You can see where this falls apart in the cinema. Hmm. Because uh, it's uh, quite a bit larger than a couch. Yep. <laughs> uh, well, I do know that um, uh, many studios do remix uh, cinema movie soundtracks for the Blu-ray or DVD release. Uh, are, are they taking these things into account generally or not? They're getting there, um, trying to popularize a little bit more. One of the problems is expense. Doing a detailed mix mm. is expensive. I mean, people do a mix, but very often it's more after, after the fact. And what we're trying to convince people to do is to do a mix with other information that goes beyond the um, audio channels so that you can do the right thing in either room with one mix. Hmm. And how would you, how would you what, would, what would be some examples of what you would do to make it good for both rooms? Well, what you do is you have to send information on what you want the acoustic to sound like. Then you have to characterize the room you're in and then process it accordingly at the destination. And I can't uh, really go into more detail there. Ah, <laughs> this reminds me of uh, something, getting back to 3D audio, something that the 3D Audio Alliance is talking about. I'm sure you're familiar with them, at least. Um, I'm wherein, aware of them. Aware of them. Uh, their whole idea is to, instead of mixing to 5.1 or 7.1 or something like that, uh, they advocate a, an approach whereby each uh, sound emitting object in the sound field is described by its vector, by its position and its motion. And that information is sent to the rendering device in somebody's home or in the theater or wherever. And the rendering system uh, knows what its capabilities are and says, oh, I've got this many speakers and I've got uh, this kind of processing. So I can take this information and render it as best I can for this system. And it will be different from one system to another, depending upon what the resources there are. Is This, uh, this sounds kind of like what you're talking about. Um, I'm afraid I can't comment, but... <laughs> <laughs> all right, but all right. I, you, you can be confident I've heard of the approach. Right, exactly. Uh, here's another question from Aphasia. Love that, love that name. Um, uh, how do you, let's see, the just discussed thing, how do the just discussed things come together uh, with the processing systems like Odyssey that are trying to correct for imperfections in the room? So we've got Odyssey, we've got, um, uh, well, Odyssey's the, the, the one that is in a bunch of different things. Pioneer's got their own, Yamaha's got their own. 
in terms of room correction? How, how does what we were just talking about relate to uh, things in uh, AV receivers that, that are meant to correct for room anomalies? Well, you have to pay attention to the room. I think room correction is the first is a first step, and I really maybe we'll see later this year the ability of me to discuss a little bit more of what else you need to do. <laughs> all right, all right. You're, we're getting into secret territory here that you can't really talk about. Uh, let's get I'm into some stuff. So. That's okay. Uh, let's get into a little bit of stuff that you can talk about from DTS, uh, in particular Neo X, which we was introduced at uh, CES in January. Uh, which we talked about a little bit earlier in terms of 11.1 with some height speakers, um, Odyssey DSX and uh, Dolby uh, ProLogic 2Z also introduced those height speakers. Um, uh, but uh, Neo X, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is specifically aimed at creating more of a 3D audio sound field, right? Well, the goal is to take the mix you've got, whether it's deliberately made or not, and actually try to create a 3D space around you. Um, and, well, there's a lot of complications. I should probably let you ask the question you're thinking of. <laughs> well, it, how, how, how does it work? Uh, not, <laughs> obviously not, not. Do you have okay. about three weeks? Yeah, right, exactly. We don't. <laughs> we have about ten minutes. <laughs> so, uh, in a nutshell... How does it do that? How the heck does it do that? Well, what you try to do is you try to encode cues into the number of channels you've got in order to basically create some information that the decoder can figure out how, where, the, where a particular band of frequency should go on playback. I mean, this is <laughs> sort of related to the older, you've, seen, you've heard of the neural surround technology. It's, it's yes, which, related DT, to, which DTS acquired, uh, what, a few couple years ago. Yeah, they bought me. And <laughs> you the worked for them, and, and then the they bought the company, and, and the then that, there you are at DTS now. Uh, yep. And, but um, that, was, that was the guys did that before I was even at Neural. But mm. the key here is the encoding, not the decoding. Okay. Um, you have to process the signal so that nothing disturbing happens at the encoding so that you can get it back at the decoding. I mean, saying more than that, in eight minutes is not going to happen. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, describe to us a little bit about Neural, because I, I know this technology, uh, it was related to THX for a while, um, and then intellectual property rights and so on. Somebody else owns it. DTS owns it now. Um, but as I understand it, it is uh, enfolding or encoding multi-channel, uh, a multi-channel sound uh, file down into a smaller number of channels, transmitting it along a pipe, and then unfolding it back into its original number of channels. Is that, have I got that right? Yeah. What it does is it, the encoder looks for the perceptually dominant signals, and then it puts them into a smaller number of channels in a way that the decoder can figure out where to put them back when you do the decoder. And the key is the perceptually dominant signal it the encoding is a very active process. Mm. And how does that relate then to Neo X? Well, it's an, it's since everything is merged, the encoders are all merging together. I mean, mm. it's, I guess uh, I guess that makes sense because Neo X one of the one of its hallmarks is the ability to take a two channel or a five point one channel and expand it out synthetically 
to 11.1, right? Um, 11.1 or a variety of other forms, yes. Yeah, it doesn't have to be 11.1. I mean, it could take two-channel out to 5.1 or 7.1, but Neo, uh, Neo 6 does that already, right? Yes. Well, the point, the point is, is that with Neo X, I think we now trying to avoid targeting toward any specific rendering setup. Rather, we'd like to accommodate whatever the rendering setup is. Well, here we get back to 3D AA again then, uh, you know, which is their stated goal as well is to decouple the encode or the, the mix from the decode and rendering uh, so that the rendering system can render it the information as best it can given its resources. Well, the only thing I can say in that regard is that there are some things that are better done at the rendering end, the playback end. That would include knowledge of where the channels are located. That would include the capabilities of the loudspeakers. That would mm -hmm. also include things like knowledge of the background level, the background noise, and a, and a variety of other things. Um, mm -hmm. I really can't say a lot more about that. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. I don't want to push too hard. Uh, you know, if I can get an exclusive, then that's a great thing, but uh, I understand completely. Um, what are the advantages of neural downmixing, uh, this neural process of taking channels and mixing them down? What, what's, what's really the advantage there? Well, the difficulty with normal mix downs is, is that if you have time delay between channels, you get frequency filtering. And anything that has time delay is likely to get and massages the mix down so that the right thing happens. I mean, there's a lot more to it. It has to analyze where is the dominant signal coming from. Okay, we want it to sound like this at the decoder, so how do we mix this down so that it comes out right when you send it through the decoder? Mm. If, you, if you just take a standard, say, a standard uh, blind uh, up mix, you know, a very simple one with no switching or anything, and you put a delay between the two front channels, what's going to happen is you're going to split that signal. Some frequencies will be in the front, some frequencies will be in the back. And, and that'll this, sound pretty darn weird. It creates, well, you understand the term interesting. It creates an interesting effect. <laughs> um, here's a question from Junior in the chat room. Was DTS penetration in the theaters as fast as 3D screens nowadays? Both technologies were um, pushed with big films, Avatar for 3D and Jurassic Park for DTS. How was the penetration rate for DTS versus 3D video? Unfortunately, when that happened, I worked for Bell Labs. Ah, so <laughs> you can't say much about that. I haven't a clue. I okay. would know who to ask, but that's all I can tell you. Okay. Uh, my friend uh, SoCal Ray Jr. asks, how does the average Joe go about getting the DTS demo disc other than going to CES? Is the DTS demo disc, which you're now on, what, number 19, 20, something like that, is that available to the public? I'm afraid I have to give you the same answer. I, no, you don't know. I'm recently enough inquired that I haven't learned all the answers to these questions, I'm afraid. Okay, all right. You've been at DTS now for what? It's going on, well, be two years or so. Mm -hmm. But you're not really involved in that sort of thing. You're, I'm, you're, I'm in the skunk works. 
<laughs> and uh, you've given us some tantalizing uh, glimpses or clues, anyway, of, of what might be coming out of the Skunk Works. Um, when, when will we hear more about more detail about what you're actually working on now? My crystal ball has this great big crack through the middle of it. <laughs> it's getting cloudy. <laughs> I can't well, say for sure. I know that we are working on things, but you understand the problems. I do understand the problems. Yes, I do. Um, well, let's see. If we've got any other questions in the chat room, I don't think we do. Uh, so I want to then thank you, J.J. Johnson, Johnston, very much for being on the show and providing some incredibly interesting insight into perceptual audio coding and perception and how the brain works and all that other kind of stuff. Thank you so much. Mm, you're welcome. So you can uh, check out what DTS is doing, what they're willing to reveal anyway, at DTS.com. My online homes are ultimateavmag.com and hometheatermag.com. You can email me at scott at twit.tv and follow me on Twitter at htgeekscott. Next week, my guest geek is scheduled to be David Bales, the AV receiver product manager at Pioneer. And I'll be talking with him from a big press event in San Francisco with lots of big news about the next generation of Pioneer receivers. So I sure hope you'll join me for that. Until then, geek out.